Hello, folks. Welcome to the 29th episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural, historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at a myth called Gasire's Lut from the Soninke people of West Africa. Join me today on a journey into the past and the present, a voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. Our myth today was first published in 1921 by a self-taught German anthropologist named Leo Frobenius. Now, this myth is a bit of an anomaly within Soninke myth, as it has no other reference save the German one. No analogues from surrounding cultures have ever been recorded, which is exceedingly rare, uh, no matter what region of the world a myth comes from. You almost always find uh, similar myths and stories being told close by. So it's very strange that this is our only account of this myth. However, Frobenius's work has been solidified by modern oral accounts of stories by the Soninke, although not this specific one. This does suggest that either only this story was forged by Leo Frobenius, or it was just rarely told by the Soninke people. Gesire's Lut is a part of a larger epic that has been essentially lost to time called Deusi, and was composed as a group of songs. So this myth would have been sung out loud in the language of the Soninke. Now you might be wondering to yourself, who are the Soninke? Well, to tell this myth, we must understand a little bit of their history. Today, the Soninke are a large ethnic group composed of approximately 2 million West African people spread between the countries of Mali, Mauritania, Senegal, Ghana, and the Gambia. In the region, 20 or so different names have been created for the Soninke by both the Soninke themselves and surrounding peoples who are not part of that group. Normally, I'd read all of these names to you, but they are so numerous that it would be a futile exercise. In the Soninke's earliest history, we have no record that the Soninke actually existed as a distinct ethnic group. However, in the lands that the Soninke now live, we do know that settlement occurred as early as 2500 BCE, some old stone houses have been found that show that there was agriculture and sedentary life in the region between 2500 BCE and 600 BCE. The Soninke are a small part of the greater Mande people, who encompass a number of different cultural groups in the region. Some historians say that the Soninke come from an aristocratic tribe called the Fasa, who moved inland from the coast in approximately 200 BCE. This is somewhat speculative, so take it with a grain of salt. The Soninke often claim origin from the Middle East or Egypt, likely due to Islamic conversion long after their formation and archaeological evidence of settlement in the region. This is associated with a man named Dinga, involved in a hero's cycle in a different myth from what I will tell today. The Muslims clearly conquered the Soninke and wrote record of their history. Thus, 
Most early information derives from Islamic sources. Our earliest reference comes to us from Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Fazari, an Arab geographer from the 700s BCE. From these Islamic accounts, the Soninke have typically been credited with founding the Ghana Empire, also known as Wagadu or Akar, in 300 CE. From here on out, I will be referring to this empire simply as Wagadu, as that is the most accepted name, both in the Islamic uh, histories as well as the modern day. Now, there is some contention about this origin of this empire due to continued Islamic scholarship on the subject. Most agree that Wagadu expanded until an event called the Hijra, also known as the procession of the Prophet Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. Some scholars believed that the Berbers of the Central Saharan region founded Wagadu instead of the Soninke. However, these analyses have been discredited in modern times. In 1969, archaeological evidence finally surfaced demonstrating that Soninke people had lived in the region since 1600 BCE at least at a site named Dar Tichit. Theories of migration suggest that the desert advanced southwards over time, pushing the Soninke into the region where they live today. Unfortunately, the focus on origin by scholars has left the actual history of Wagadu quite scarce. We do know that they were prolific traders, sharing goods with both Moroccan and Sudanese peoples. They had even implemented attacks by the time Arab scholars made contact with Wagadu. The city of Koumbi Saleh is accepted as the capital of trade and government for the Ghana Empire, or Wagadu. Gold, iron, and salt made up the bulk of goods traded across the Sahara by the Soninke, and was made more viable via the introduction of the camel, likely by the Muslims. It seems that this focus on trade led to relative stability in the region and the development of educational institutions. However, this point is entirely speculative as we do not have enough recorded history to state this definitively. The government of Wagadu was clearly a monarchy, though some elements of oligarchy may also have been present. The king received tribute from neighboring kingdoms who traded with Wagadu and obtained gold off of every sale completed in his territory. The system in place appears to have been primarily patriarchal, and though governors, magistrates, and elders would have been important in the maintenance of the empire, this was no constitutional monarchy, but an absolute one. Islamic influence began in earnest from the late 800s CE and a mosque was built for visiting Muslims in the borough of El Gaba in Koumbi Saleh. The other borough of Koumbi Saleh may have been built primarily by either Islamic devotees from within the empire or even with help from foreign Muslims. This is speculated because there were apparently a total of 12 mosques in this other district that remains unnamed in the modern day. Our lack of reference for historical events leads us to speculate that the Ghana Empire occasionally conquered surrounding kingdoms and certainly derived tribute from them. However, the regular trade relations suggests a more complex set of alliances in the region and the potential of a slow assimilation of surrounding peoples into Wagadu until its decline in the 1200s CE. Wagadu lasted longer than the Roman Empire did, yet we only have fragmentary references to political and military action in West Africa. It's also important to note that the first reference to imperialism and empire is from the 800s CE, when the Islamic peoples uh, reached Wagadu. So it is possible that Wagadu was much more peaceful prior to Muslim influence. The Almoravids conquered the Ghana Empire in 1076 CE. It is unclear exactly how this occurred, though some speculate that local peoples had become fed up with tribute and rebelled against Wagadu. 
Along with internal conflicts common amongst all imperial governments, this would have been enough to diminish the trade routes that had kept the Soninke in power. Thus, they assimilated with the Soso, who would remain in power for about 150 years. This did not dissolve Wagadu, but rather flipped the power dynamics of the region, as now Wagadu gave tribute to the surrounding kingdoms instead of the opposite, which had been the status quo for almost a thousand years at that point, perhaps a little less. The end of the empire is quite definitively dated to the Battle of Kirina, or 1235 CE. The Mali Empire had grown powerful to the north of Wagadu and allied with the Almoravids, leading to conflict that erupted in a great battle with Wagadu. The outcome of this battle led to the raising of Soso cities, likely including Koumbi Saleh. The Soninke were now under the control of the Mali Empire and would remain as an ethnic group with cultural and religious prominence, though never the same amount of political control that they exercised throughout the first millennia of the Common Era. Most Soninke today are practitioners of Sunni Islam, their traditional religion, and still live where the Ghana Empire ruled. The Mali Empire seems to have introduced a caste system to the Soninke, who began to follow it. This system separated people into distinct classes based on occupation. These classes were far more numerous and granular than other representative caste systems like the Varna system of Vedic India. It's unclear whether or not slavery had been present prior to the Mali Empire conquering the Soninke, but afterwards, slavery becomes an important part of the history of the Soninke people. Even these slaves had distinct social classes, three of them, in fact. Some slave castes could not be sold, and others could be. The Soninke would eventually be exploited by European slave traders and were captured as slaves for the European transatlantic slave trade. Like so many people in West Africa, it seems that a homegrown tradition of slavery allowed for a very smooth transition to a more foreign form of this slavery that had less nuance and specifically benefited Europeans over African people. The French and English were the main colonizers of the Soninke and had similar relations with them as they did with the Fon and Aja people of Benin and Togo, as well as most of West African peoples. However, Portuguese presence was also common in the early stages of the European colonization of Africa. It's quite difficult to directly track the history of the Soninke at this time due to their relatively large expanse of inhabited territory. Their history with Europeans is spread across the coast of West Africa, and thus can be assumed to be similar to other tribes that had more distinct relations with the Europeans. They likely dealt with bounty hunters from within their own communities and external slave traders. Europeans built a number of forts on the coast that would have become important places of trade, not only for slaves, but for goods and services from Europe. From the 1800s on, the colonization became much more severe with the introduction of plantations and occupation of inland regions by European forces. Some countries experienced rebellions against this force while others submitted to Europe's military might. Colonies were established, if they had not been already, and the local people likely experienced a great deal of oppression and subjugation from Europeans, mostly the English and French. In the 1900s, many African countries won their independence from Europeans, some through force and others through diplomacy, depending on the timing. At this moment in history, it is almost impossible to continue specifically tracking the Soninke, as their population was split amongst a series of countries. And personally, I didn't want to research the history of four or five different countries for this one episode. So, as well as this myth coming from around this time. So, 
all of this history that I have just spoken about affects the myth that we will be talking about today, and what happens after is somewhat irrelevant for our discussion. When we do return to West Africa and I tell a myth that was published more recently, then I will tell the history of these countries because they are just as important as ancient history, simply not relevant for our discussion today. So without further ado, let's get into our myth. Gasire Slut. Four times beautiful Wagadu has existed, and four times Wagadu has disappeared from sight. The first time because her children were vain, the second because they were deceptive, the third because they were greedy, and the fourth because they were quarrelsome. Four times Wagadu has changed her name, first to Diera, next to Agada, then to Ghana, and finally to Sila. Four times Wagadu has changed the direction she faces, first to the north, next to the west, then to the east, and finally to the south. Wagadu receives the strength to endure from the four directions, which is why she has had four gates to her city, first to the north, next to the west, then to the east, and finally to the south. She has endured when her children have built her of earth, of wood, or of stone, or when she has existed only as a vision in the imaginations and desires of her children. Wagadu actually is the strength that exists in the hearts of her children. She is visible in times of war, when the air resounds with the clash and clamor of battle as sword meets sword and shield. She is invisible when the errors in the hearts of her children tire her and make her fall asleep. Wagadu has fallen asleep four times. The first time because her children were vain, the second because they were deceptive, the third because they were greedy, and the fourth because they were quarrelsome. If her children ever find Wagadu a fifth time, the vision of her beauty will shine so radiantly within their minds that they will never again lose her. Then, even if her children suffer from vanity, deception, greed, and dissension, these will never be able to harm her. Whoo! Diera, Agada, Ghana, Sila, whoo! Fasa! Each time the errors in the hearts of her children have caused Wagadu to disappear, she has reappeared possessing an even greater beauty. Her children's vanity created the great songs of heroes that bards sang in the second Wagadu and have continued to sing for countless generations, songs that all peoples of the Sudan still value today. Her children's deception brought forth showers of gold and pearls in the third Wagadu. Her children's greed created the need for writing in the fourth Wagadu, writing that the Burdama still use today. Her children's quarrels will produce a fifth Wagadu that will continue as long as it rains in the south and rocks jut forth from the Sahara Desert. Then every man will carry a vision of Wagadu within his heart, and every woman will carry a vision of Wagadu within her womb. Who? Diera, Agada, Ghana, Sila, Hu, Fasa. Her children's vanity led Wagadu to disappear for the first time. Then she was called Diera, and she faced north. The last king of Diera was Naganamba Fasa. The Fasa were strong warriors and great heroes, but they were growing old. Every day of every month, they had to fight their enemies. Day after day, month after month, Without ceasing, they had to fight their enemies. Yet the Fasa remained strong. Each man was a hero in his own right, and each woman was proud of the heroic strength of each man. King Naganamba was old enough to have a son, Gasire, who was the father of eight grown sons. Even these sons were the fathers of sons, making King Naganamba a great-grandfather among men. 
It was at the end of King Naganamba's rule that Wagadu disappeared for the first time. Would this have happened if Naganamba had died and Gesire had ruled in his place? Who? Diera, Agada, Ghana, Sila, who? Fasa. Yet Gesire never had the opportunity to rule in his father's place. Gesire longed for his father's death and his own kingship. He listened for some sign of weakness in his father, and he searched for a sign of impending death as a lover searches the sky at dusk for the evening star, the first sign of night. Day after day and month after month passed, and still Naganamba did not die. Each day, Gasire raised his sword and shield and rode into battle against the Burdama, fighting like the great hero that he was. Each night, when evening shrouded the land in shadow, Gasire rode into Diera and took his place in the circle among the men of the city and his eight grown sons. His ears listened to the praises the other heroes sang of his great deeds upon the battlefield, but his heart was jealous of his father's power. Deep within, night after night and month after month, Gesire wept with longing for his father's death and his own kingship. He longed to carry his father's sword and shield, but they belonged to the king alone. His anger grew into wrath, his wrath grew into rage, and he could no longer sleep at night. So late one night, Gesire quietly arose, dressed, left his house, and visited the oldest wise man in the city. Can you tell me when I shall become king of the Fasa? Gesire asked. Ah, Gesire, the old wise man replied, your father, King Naganamba, will die, but you will not inherit his shield and sword. That is for others, not for you. You will carry a loot, and your loot will cause the disappearance of Wagadu. Ah, Gesire. Gesire said, You lie, old man. It is clear that you are not wise at all. As long as her heroes can defend her, we shall not lose Wagadu. Who, Diera? Agada, Ghana, Sila, who? Fasa. The next morning, Gesire set out to prove that his path was indeed that of the warrior and hero. He said to the other Fasa heroes, Today there is no need for you to fight the Burdama. I shall take them upon my spear and my sword without your help. So it came to pass that Gesire fought against the Burdama, one against many. As a farmer's sickle cuts down the wheat in the field, so Gesire's sword cut down the Burdama. The Burdama felt terror enter their hearts. We are fighting more than a hero and more than a fossa, they cried. Against such a being, we have no strength and no skill. So each Burdama tossed away his two spears, turning his horse in retreat, and fled in fear. As the Fasa heroes entered the field to gather the spears of their enemies, they sang, Gesire has always performed the greatest deeds of any Fasa. He has always been the greatest of our heroes. Yet by winning so many swords as one against many, Gesire has outdone himself today. Wagadu smiles with pride. That night, when evening shrouded the land in shadow and the men gathered into their circle, Gesire wandered into the fields. He heard a partridge that was resting beneath a bush sing. Hear the song of my deeds. And the partridge sang of its battle against a snake. In time, all who live will die, will be buried, and will decay, the partridge sang. Like all creatures, I too will die, will be buried, and will decay. But the song of my battles will live. Bards will sing my battle song again and again, long after heroes and kings have died and decayed. 
Wagadoo will disappear, but my battle song will live on and on. Who that my deeds will become such a song? Who that I will sing such battle songs? Who, Diera, Agara, Ghana, Sila, who, Fasa? Gesire returned to the old wise man. I heard a partridge in the field brag that the songs of its deeds will live long after Wagadu has disappeared. Do humans also know great battle songs? And do these battle songs live long after heroes and kings have died and decayed? Yes, they do, Gesire, the old wise man replied. Your path is to be a singer of great battle songs rather than a great king of the Fasa. Ah, Gesire, long ago the Fasa lived by the sea. They were great heroes then, too. They fought against men who played the lute and sang great battle songs. And those men were heroes also. Often they caused terror to enter the hearts of the Fasa. You, too, will play battle songs on the lute, but Wagadu will disappear because of it. Then let Wagadu disappear, Gasire exclaimed. Who, Diera, Agada, Ghana, Sila, who, Fasa? The next morning, Gasire visited the Fasa smith and said, Master Smith, I want you to make a lute for me. The smith replied, Make a lute I will, but it will not sing. Gesire responded, Master Smith, just make the lute. I will make it sing. When the smith had finished the lute, Gesire immediately tried to play it, but he found that it would not sing. Master Smith, what good is this lute to me? I cannot make it sing. Gesire complained, tell me what I should do. The smith answered, Gesire, until it develops a heart, a lute is only a piece of wood. If you wish to make it sing, you must help it develop a heart. When you next go into battle, carry your lute upon your back. Let it feel the thrust of your sword. Let it absorb the blood of your wounds. Right now, your lute is still part of the tree from which it was made. It must become a part of you, your sons and your people. It must share your pain as well as your fame. It must absorb the lifeblood of your sons. Then the feelings of your heart will enter the lute and develop its heart. Your sons will die and decay, but they will continue to live in your lute. However, I must warn you, you will play battle songs on the lute, but Wagadu will disappear because of it. Then let Wagadu disappear, Gesire exclaimed. Who, Diera, Agada, Ghana, Sila, who, Fasa? The next morning, Gesire called his eight sons together and said, Today, when we fight the Burdama, our sword thrusts will live forever in my lute. May we fight with such courage, strength, and skill that our deeds will create a battle song that surpasses the battle songs of all other heroes. You, my eldest son, will lead the charge with me today. So it came to pass that Gesire hung his lute upon his shoulder and rode into battle with his eldest son at his side. They fought against the Burdama as more than heroes and more than Fasa. Together they fought against eight Burdama. As a farmer's sickle cuts down the wheat in the field, so Gesire's sword and the sword of his eldest son cut down four of the Burdama heroes. Then a Burdama thrust his sword into the heart of Gesire's eldest son. He fell from his horse, his lifeblood pouring from him. Gesire sadly dismounted, lifted the corpse of his son upon his own back, and returned to the other heroes and the city of Diera. As he rode, the blood of his eldest son poured over the lute and was absorbed into the wood. Who, 
Diera, Agada, Ghana, Sila, Hu, Fasa. Gesire's eldest son was buried, and the city was solemn with mourning. That night, Gesire tried to play his lute, but no matter how hard he tried, it would not sing. He called his seven sons together and said, Tomorrow we again ride into battle against the Burdama. Each of the next six days passed as the first day had passed. Each day in the order of their birth, a different one of Gesire's sons joined his father in leading the charge against the Burdama. Each day one of the enemy thrust his sword into the heart of that son, and he fell from his horse, his lifeblood pouring from him. Each day Gesire sadly dismounted, lifted the corpse of his son upon his back, and returned to the other heroes and the city of Diera. Each day as he rode, the blood of his son poured over the lute and was absorbed into the wood. By the end of the seventh day of fighting, the men of Diera were angry, the women were weeping with fear and grief, and everyone was mourning the dead. That night, when evening shrouded the land in shadow and the heroes had gathered into the circle, they said, Gesire, enough is enough! You are fighting out of anger and without good reason! Gather your servants and your cattle! Take those who would join you and leave our city! Let the rest of us live here in peace. We too want fame, but we choose life over fame when the cost of fame is death. The old wise man exclaimed, Ah, Gasire, today for the first time, Wagadu will disappear. Who? Diera, Agada, Ghana, Sila, Who? Fasa. So Gesire gathered his wives, his youngest son, his friends, and his servants, and rode off into the Sahara Desert. Only a few of the Fasa heroes accompanied Gesire on his journey. Gesire and his companions rode far into the lonely wilderness. They rode day and night, sleeping only when they could ride no further. One night, Gesire sat awake and alone by the fire, the world around him was lonely and silent, for everyone else was asleep. His youngest son, the heroes, the women, and the servants. Gesire had just dozed off himself when a sudden sound awakened him. Next to him, as though he were singing himself, Gesire heard a voice singing. It was his lute, and it was singing his great battle song. When the lute finished singing his great battle song for the first time, back in Diera, King Naganamba died, and Wagadu disappeared for the first time. When the lute finished singing his great battle song for the second time, Gesire's anger disappeared, and he wept. He wept with grief and with joy, grief over the death of his seven sons and the disappearance of Wagadu and joy over the great battle song that would bring everlasting fame to him and his sons. Who, Diera, Agara, Ghana, Sila, who, Fasa. Four times beautiful Wagadu has existed, and four times Wagadu has disappeared from sight. The first time because her children were vain, the second because they were deceptive, the third because they were greedy, and the fourth because they were quarrelsome. Her children's quarrels will produce a fifth Wagadu that will continue as long as it rains in the south and rocks jut forth from the Sahara Desert. Then every man will carry a vision of Wagadu within his heart, and every woman will carry a vision of Wagadu within her womb. Who? Diera, Agada, Ghana, Sila, who? Fasa. A song, music. Music defines this myth. It is a myth about music. As a musician myself, I feel very connected to this concept of immortality through music. My own work is immortal in a way. It exists without me, without my presence. Now, I did not bleed people upon my 
guitar or balalaika or saxophone to make such music, but that feeling still remains. And it's interesting that that feeling was present even in very elite circles of the Wagadu people. Because remember, writing was almost never done by commoners. It was done by people at the very top of whatever sort of hierarchy was in place in whatever culture had writing at the time. Uh, writing was just very rare. And it's unfortunate that we're missing the rest of this longer epic, Daoussi, because this is quite clearly only the first part. It's clear that the other three times would have been recounted by this epic. However, we simply lack any reference to these sections today. Now, let's go all the way back if you remember that this myth is not necessarily from the Soninke. There is some contention about whether it is or is not because the only reference comes to us from a German. So before we start breaking apart what the myth actually is about, I think it's important to recognize that some of these themes, especially about war and uh, immortality, are very related to European epics. Now, that's not to say that the writings of Europe or the Middle East couldn't have affected the Wagadu people, especially because of the Islamic influence. There's multiple potential understandings of how these themes reached the Wagadu, or if the Wagadu formulated these themes themselves. The theme of war as glory is something that I really remember seeing primarily in Beowulf, not in Gilgamesh. This idea of glory and war was definitely present in the Muslim world as well, so perhaps it comes from there. But that's a very important part of the myth. This uh, conflict between the Fasa and the Burdama people is representative of a, an ongoing conflict, right? It, it demonstrates that this was how people at the time showed that they were powerful, that they could defeat the Burdama. This is pretty common in a lot of more imperial cultures that were interested in uh, controlling a certain amount of land. They would go to war with people and they would raise that war to a certain level of glory in order to get normal people to take part in it. However, it's important to note at the end here that this myth does not fully support war, especially if it hurts people. The people of Wagadu exile Gasire because of his obsession with war and ultimately immortality. The little partridge that tells him that he will find immortality through song, through war song specifically, is quite interesting because this partridge is the only real spot of magic other than the lute in the, in the myth. It could be representative of a sort of god concept or the natural world speaking to Gasire to shape the human world. A give and take between the natural and the human, as at this time there was beginning to be a separation between these concepts, especially among peoples who worshipped a single god, which could have been the case in Wagadu because of the Islamic influence. In the modern day, we lack a lot of the references to break apart what these exact metaphors might be. Why the partridge specifically? Was there something about a partridge in other myths that explained why this bird would have been the one to cause Gesire to do such folly, to commit such folly? I think the old man is another very interesting character because he is a representative of fate. And this was a very common theme and remains a common theme in African religion to this day. At least in Yoruba, which is really the only African religion I am familiar with at all, I know that there is a practice of divination that is very important for major life events for people. For instance, when somebody gets married or comes of age as a person, as an adult, practitioners of Yoruba will go to a diviner, somebody who can read the future, read fate, and that person will throw, I think it's specific kinds of nuts, I can't remember exactly what kind, that are hollowed out, and depending on how they land, that is that person's fate. And 
it allows for some control as well of the people because most of these diviners would have been uh, pretty old people, like an old man, and those people would have been interested in the maintenance of customs, tradition, and uh, the specific culture of the Fasa or Soninke. Now, I think that the name Soninke is probably a more modern one, and the Fasa name is an older version of this. Uh, it seems as well that this Fasa name is the collective understanding of the people, as it is the final part of that chorus that goes over and over again, that who, Agata, Sila, Gana, Diera, yeah, I said it out of order there. But the last one is Fasa, after the second who. This suggests that all of these pieces are part of a whole. Each form of Wagadu is just a different permutation of the Fasa people. And this is a common motif throughout empires. The idea that empires can change and peoples can change while still maintaining a level of power, a level of maintained uh, identity. I think that that's a rather interesting way of looking at the world because it posits that assimilation is in fact impossible. That there are, are only periods of uh, brief uh, decline rather than a complete dissolution. And this is the reality of the Fasa people, or the Soninke people, as to this day they remain as a prominent and important cultural uh, ethnic group in the region. So it, it makes sense that they would understand themselves in this way, unlike uh, perhaps the people of Europe, which saw Rome completely fall and no representative truly take up what Rome was in that region until perhaps the papacy. But even then, that is more a specifically religious form of control, which was a form of Romanness, but I don't know. It, it's a little hard to draw that direct comparison there, whereas with Wagadu, it's much easier um, because of how they set it up in this myth. Now, let's try to make sense of the relationship between the king and Gesire. Gesire vies for the king's position, and ultimately that is his goal at the beginning. His exploits in war are not to gain immortality or the war song that he looks for in the second half of the myth, but rather to demonstrate that he is powerful. He does it for no other reason than to do it, almost, completing an important role for the Fasa as a warrior. Perhaps this myth is showing that when you start to think only of yourself, you begin to no longer think of your people and you are no longer worthy of becoming king. I think that's a pretty healthy way of looking at monarchy if we're going to have it. A monarch should care for their people, should benefit their people with every action that they take. Now, I'm not going to say that we should have monarchy. I think that democracy is in general, a much more effective system in the modern day than monarchy. But I do think that there are different kinds of monarchy, some of which are extremely unhealthy to the people who live under them. And I will say that absolute monarchy like this has a tendency to lead to that point. However, it's important to note the democratic control that the people of Wagadu exhibit at the end of the myth, exiling Gasire. This relationship of the king and his son is very important in the Middle East and Mesopotamia as well. And so I see the representation here as an expression of those forces and those ideas being translated over to the Soninke or Fasa people. This is because in very early myths in Mesopotamia, such as the Epic of Creation, we see a representation, and we haven't told this story yet, but we will get to the Epic of Creation. It's one of my favorite myths, uh, or favorite epics, rather. It tells the story of how one god is replaced by a younger god. And this also takes place in Greek myth, where Kronos is overthrown by Zeus. It's a very common theme across a number of different mythologies. And so it's not really surprising to find it here, as this myth is very much influenced by Islam, which is influenced 
by Arabian myths, which are influenced by Mesopotamian myths. So we see a direct line from the Middle Eastern concept of a king being replaced by their younger uh, counterpart, a more powerful person replacing the old, uh, rebuilding, unifying. Now this concept is very fascist. It's important to note that here because fascism works through a concept of unity and the overturning of old for a similar new. Not a fully new, but a similar new. A rebuilding of the house rather than a demolishing of it and the rebuilding of something new. That is how fascism and empire operates. I see fascism and empire as very connected ideas. Uh, they are not the same, and it's important to note that, but they are connected because of these unifying themes of, of well, unity and uh, the disregarding of old ways of being for more violent uh, new ways of being, the overthrowing of the old, not just the transition of power from old to young. However, the idea here is failed. Yasire fails to overturn his father and instead chases immortality fut in futility. For immortality is never truly real. Well, I suppose that I am giving Gesire a little bit of immortality right now by speaking his name, by speaking this story back into reality for you, the listener. So perhaps there is an element of truth to this story that the war song of Gesire does live forever now in not only the hearts of the Fasa people, but the hearts of all people. The idea of empire returning is another part here that is important to note. The idea that golden age will come about the fifth era of Wagadu. This is another common theme amongst both fascism and uh, especially declining empires. Wagadu seems to have gone through a series of different reforms or moments of decline where they were perhaps experiencing more conflict with neighboring peoples. Thus, the idea that eventually Wagadu would return to some kind of glory, some kind of golden age, is similar to other ideas about the return of a perfect European state or a perfect Middle Eastern state. Uh, many different movements throughout history have sought to introduce a golden age back to the people. However, almost unequivocally, these movements lead to the oppression of those that are not considered part of that golden age, that are considered separate from who should be receiving the fruits of that golden age, even though when a golden age does actually occur, it benefits everybody. You see, the concept of a golden age is an idea, not a real thing. Like so many ideas in history and concepts that are played with, Golden Ages occur uh, almost randomly, more so through uh, the convergence of a number of factors that we cannot control. So when you ever hear a, a, a leader attempting to tell you that they are going to give you great things, that they will bring you uh, benefit, a return specifically, to a better time, trust me, it's always a falsehood, unequivocally. It is always a falsehood because those ideas always lead to the oppression of people. So even if you personally experience what you might call a golden age from this leader's uh, help or restructuring of, of your government or system, it does not affect most people, only you. And that is why you like that leader, because you are seeing benefit and you are selfish for that. Sorry, you are. Truth be told, this is what we are seeing in America today, the movement of Trumpian expectations of return to a sort of 1950s nuclear family oppressive state. And it is oppressive. We know that this state is quite oppressive. America is oppressive today, let alone during the 1950s and 60s and before and throughout the rest of the time of America. The, the rise of this rhetoric throughout the world, I mean, this is not just in America as well, this is going on kind of everywhere. The return of this rhetoric is quite disturbing to me because it suggests that people are trying to re-implement a form of empire, a form of imperialism, 
for a, a number of different countries. Now, this imperialism has been codified with nationalism, with jingoism now. So this concept is, is different. It is founded on nation states rather than larger concepts of ethnicity or empire or region or city-state. The concept of empire has changed, and thus we cannot use the same definitions that we used to for it. Gesire has truly written a great war song, and that war song continues to this day. For when people try to implement great things, immortality for themselves and immortality for their people, they lead their people to war. They lead them to death. They lead them and their sons to death. Now, I don't want to focus too much on these broader concepts, so let's get a little more specific. I want to focus specifically on the character of Gesire. What does Gesire feel throughout this myth? How does Gesire respond to the pressures surrounding him? In the beginning of the myth, he is uh, representing that warrior aspect. But I think it is interesting that he very quickly gives up on Wagadu. He is interested in letting it disappear. He has multiple different lines throughout this myth that say directly, well, let Wagadu disappear then if I am to get immortality. And that is the subtext there. And he is choosing himself, his own benefit, over that of the people, over that of the majority. And I think that that is the main theme here, the main moral that can be gleaned from this myth, that if we ever lead, we should be interested in the people over ourselves. And those people's needs might be different than ours. It's clear that Gesire's only interest is power, for immortality is a form of power. And the killing of his sons, uh, via negligence, really, I mean, he, he brings them regularly into war. He did not need to do that. Through this negligence of his own, this willingness to sacrifice his own children, he sacrifices his humanity, his soul, his ability to govern. And thus, the people of Fasa must reject him. People all over must reject him, and only a few heroes may travel with him. Those that also, perhaps, have this same problem, the problem of only seeking benefit for oneself. Now, I think it's interesting here the representation of music with this seeking for immortality. Perhaps it was a way of telling people that only playing a lute, only playing music is selfish, that it only breeds this expectation of benefit for oneself. And I think this is somewhat true. We should play music with others. We should play music in a way that is not going to uh, overtake our entire life that music should be a part of life. And we should not forget all of, our, all of the things that we need to do for others, for society. We should not forget society when we play music, when we do things that we love for our own benefit. Those things are necessary, yes, but they come at a cost, a cost of uh, laziness in other fields. Gesire is ultimately an opposite Gilgamesh. Uh, please do listen to the epic of Gilgamesh. I feel like it is a very good uh, representative of an epic, and it's a good baseline to understand this epic, or at least the beginning of this epic uh, today. Because the epic of Gilgamesh is interested in showing us what a good ruler actually is. And it demonstrates this through a series of different trials that uh, Gilgamesh goes through. A trial of friendship, a trial of love, a trial of uh, strength, a trial of the unknown, a trial of uh, learning knowledge, a trial of crossing uh, great rivers. And the final and most important trial that Gilgamesh goes through is the obtaining of immortality. He does choose to take this immortality, but he leaves it uh, unguarded when he, I think, bathes uh, briefly after leaving Utnapishtim's uh, garden. And it is there that a snake steals the fruit of immortality. 
And so it is that Gilgamesh never receives that immortality and becomes a truly good ruler for his people, for the people of Uruk. Similarly, but oppositely here, Gesire follows a degradation, and that is what this entire myth is about. It is about degradation, the failure of an empire, the failure of a ruler to continue that empire and to keep it prosperous, to keep it able to fight off uh, invaders such as the Burdama. Gesire is taken by this immortality. He is unable to understand that it is something to leave behind, something to not pay that much attention to. Our actions lead to immortality no matter what, so long as we put our full effort into them. We do, if seeking immortality specifically is a foolish errand, it, it does not have any bearing on real life, for immortality is just a concept, an understanding, believing that one can leave an indelible impression on the world. And that is actually explicitly what immortality is here. It is not magical. Immortality is not this concept that you live forever. It is the idea that through your action, you can live forever. And Gesire lives in infamy. Immortality often is attributed to infamy. A lot of our most famous historical characters are very infamous rather than famous. Now, that's not to say that there are not great people in history that did incredible things that are remembered for doing great things. Uh, Cincinnatus comes to mind, a leader of Rome who fought off uh, invading forces and then retired to a farm and allowed for a return back to a, a republic, I, from my memory. Maybe it was empire at that point. I'm not exactly certain. But nonetheless, he is regarded as a very humble person in history and remembered for it. So clearly it is possible to be immortal in this way uh, through good action, through just benefit for the majority of your people. However, this is not what Gesire does. Gesire follows the idea of immortality, not the benefit of his people. Oddly, it is also that King Ngambana is able to receive immortality through the action of Gesire. Because he has benefited his people and lived a long time, he pushes Gesire to become frustrated and uh, become impatient. And through this impatience, this inability to see reason, to see that if the people are prospering, then there does not need to be a change, it is through this that Nugambana becomes immortal because he is seen as the better alternative, the wise ruler that silently helps his people. Now, of course, we do not have exact reference to anything that Ngambana does in this myth, as he is a non-character. He is just a uh, plot device, really. However, it seems that the people are happy with his rule, whereas Gesire only serves to anger the people with his action because his action is based on conflict and based on his own self-interest. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, and engaging in discussion within the comments. Along with this podcast, I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocane.com. That's www.echocain.com. Next episode, we'll be exploring a Vietnamese myth named The Fly. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one, and yes, only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and now, for the last word. Today's last word is... Falling.